Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Truth and movies. Today, Tom is cruising for a bruising in stunt-heavy action spectacular Mission Impossible Fallout. You use a scalpel. I prefer a hammer. Faith and family collide in Daniel Cocotelo's Jehovah's Witness drama, Apostasy. God is going to restore Earth back to paradise, how he intended it to be. And in Film Club, James Wilby and a young Hugh Grant star in the Merchant Ivory E.M. Forster adaptation and landmark queer romance, Morris. You made a fool of me and I can make you sorry for it. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Well, here we go again. Actually, that was last week. But it's Michael Leader back again, sitting across from Adam Woodward, A Little White Lies. Hello. And Elena Lazic. Hi. Welcome back. How are you all doing today? We Very good? Very well. Yeah, just about staying cool. It's nice. It feels nice and cool in our in our little sound booth here. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling very frazzled because literally less than 12 hours ago, I was sitting in my seat drinking in Tom Cruise, jumping, running, driving, <laughs> flying in Mission Impossible Fallout. So I think without further ado, we should get to our first film this week. Let's do it. The aforementioned Mission Impossible Fallout. Tom Cruise is back for the sixth time as the IMF agent Ethan Hunt, bringing with him the returning ensemble of Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames and Rebecca Ferguson to tackle another international terrorist threat. This time, however, the authorities are breathing down his neck. Here's CIA Chief Angela Bassett, butting heads with IMF Secretary Alec Baldwin and introducing Hunt's CIA minder, played by Mustachio Muscleman, Henry Cavill. What do you think you're doing, Erica? It may be your mission, but this is the CIA's plane. It doesn't take off without my say-so. We need reliable intelligence, and we need it now. Uh, This scenario is precisely why the IMF exists. The IMF is Halloween, Alan. A bunch of grown men in rubber masks playing trick-or-treat. And if he had held on to the plutonium in Berlin, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And his team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. And that's why I want one of my own men on the scene to appraise the situation. Agent Walker, Special Activities. His reputation precedes. You use a scalpel. I prefer a hammer. My man goes, or no one goes. So we're going to go where no one goes, deep into Mission Impossible Fallout. <laughs> Adam, you wrote the review for Little White Lies. Were you excited about this movie going into it? I was a little apprehensive, given mm-hmm. that I think the last two, which were Rogue Nation... I think it came out three years mm-hmm. ago now, yeah. and Ghost Protocol before that. Especially Ghost Protocol, it was seen as like the big reboot of mm-hmm. the franchise. 
And I think it had some amazing set pieces, especially yeah. the Burj Khalifa scene with Tom Cruise kind of hanging out this enormous skyscraper. But those films beyond that, for me, didn't really hang together that much. Mm-hmm. Um, felt quite kind of pedestrian story-wise. And this one just feels like they've gone back to basics a little bit with it. And also up the ante, just in terms of what it delivers as an action spectacle. And yeah, it's just really great to see all the gang back together, everyone plays their part really nicely. Everyone's given something to do that mm-hmm. contributes to the story, especially Simon Pegg, uh, Ving Rhames and Rebecca Ferguson, as yeah. you mentioned. It's so interesting that this is a franchise that has almost discovered that it's a franchise along the way. It's been going for 20-odd years now, and now there's this sense of an ensemble cast that they can just pull from for each film. Ving Rhames returning for multiple films. Simon Pegg, originally just the, the ops man in the corner, is now a fully-fledged field agent. Uh, Elena, do you have a relationship with this franchise going into this? Yeah, I mean, I've seen, I think I've seen most of the mm-hmm. films from the franchise, but um, this is the first of the films where I really feel like the the whole thing about Tom Cruise doing his own stunt. Even the last one and the one before that, I watched them, I was like, oh, well, I guess this is really dangerous, but I didn't really care. I was just like, why is he doing this? This is just not worth it. But in this film, when he did every single of his insane stunts, I was actually awed by them. I don't know how. I think it's the film is really structured around them and really... Uh, they film those stunts in the most impactful way. Mm-hmm. Like There's a real understanding of how to make stunt work really incredible on screen. And so this is the first time where I was actually like, I couldn't believe what I was watching and it was incredible. Yeah, There's one um, particularly amazing sequence, I think, where Tom Cruise performs a, what's known as a halo jump, um, <laughs> which is, stands for high altitude, low opening, essentially mm. a, a system developed by the US military. And he wears this quite silly looking, I mean, the outfit looks like it's modelled on the video game Halo in some right, way, but yeah. he, he drops out of this cargo plane at like 25,000 feet. And when you're watching it, you're realising that the camera crew who are, who are filming it have, are doing the same stunt effectively. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in the moment you realise what a difficult thing, what an impressive thing that is to pull off and how many hours of training and how many runs they must have had at it. I don't know if it was a one-take thing, but you imagine he probably had to perform that a few times to get it right. Exactly, and it's become a defining feature of this franchise, that everything's done in camera, and to a certain extent, whatever you see Tom Cruise doing, he is a human crash test dummy, being thrown through walls, you know, jumping off buildings, running across the tops of bridges and so on. And is that the reason to watch this film? Is there anything else for it, or is it just go and see Tom Cruise go through hairier and scarier situations? Well, I really like what you said um, about how you get the sense that the film crew also had to do all those things, because I think what's really interesting and incredible, why the film has so much energy to it, is you get the sense... Obviously, Tom Cruise is doing a lot of work, Mm -hmm. but you also get the sense that the film is there with him Mm -hmm. and everyone involved in the film is also doing literally the the best thing that they can ever do. And then everyone has this energy, like the way it's shot and everything. You can tell the cameraman worked hard on it. You can tell everyone's fought through all the set pieces and all the actors, everyone's working really hard to it. So there's this sense of like gleeful joy where it's not just watching Tom Cruise being crazy. It's like everyone is being crazy together and creating this incredible thing. So yeah, I think it's, it's it's just a joyous experience. It's something that Christopher McQuarrie, this is his second as director and second as well, writer-director, but he did do some writing behind the scenes on Ghost Protocol as well. He's built a tone for the film around Tom Cruise, but it's not a pure star vehicle. It is an ensemble movie. And there are these little plot points that everyone gets something to do. Everyone has their moment, their speech, their moment to shine. I think the key thing is that this is not... James Bond or mm. Jason Bourne even like you can't plug someone else into that role 
Tom Cruise has made it his own and you know I think that's maybe where things like Ghost Protocol certainly fell down is that they were trying to emulate those other mm-hmm. action movies those very modern anti-hero kind of macho action movies and, and this is just something very different and it's something that's very self-aware as well Yeah, it doesn't forget like where it's come from there's a lot of callbacks to some of the earlier films and we still have people pulling off rubber masks and <laughs> these these red herrings and little switcheroos which just yeah very entertainingly delivered in this uh, occasion for me where this film slightly fell down in comparison to the other films is that uh, this felt like the least written of the movies is certainly the, the of the chris Macquarie era there's a lot of plot and character incidents and impossible diplomatic situations for ethan hunt in the first couple of acts you hear how the cia are meddling the bad guy from the previous movie played by sean harris is back and he's got this in, in, you know, invisible insidious network of uh, international terrorists who are making things difficult for not just ethan hunt but the world but then the back half of the movie is just one big spectacle sequence one set piece in a way and it's at that point where I think it's just not as fully formed. And it, it actually plays into a theme that they've baked into the films itself, which is there's a repeated line, which is, I'm working on it, which is, you know, they're set in a possible situation, like there's a bomb that's going to go off or there's a, a car's going to fall off a, you know, a fall cliff or something. And someone says, I'm working on it, I'm working on it, I don't have a plan yet, but I'll get there. And it feels like they're just throwing the so-called uh, tracks in front of the train um, mm. with this film. Yeah, I see what you mean, but I just, that end sequence in particular is just, I think it's one of the best action scenes I can remember seeing. <clears throat> and we saw the film in IMAX, and yeah. you get a full sense of scale mm-hmm. watching it that way. You see that they've actually filmed it using IMAX cameras, and I, I don't know that you can have too much of a good thing when it comes to that kind of action. And also I think one of the things about like action films like this is obviously you know that the main guy is going to be fine because that's it's a franchise mm-hmm. and Tom Cruise and whatever. But I think what uh, the the good thing about the Mission Impossible movies is that every time li- he's literally a guy who, who has a who doesn't have plans and he works it out but always last minute. We already know this about him. But in this film as you're saying like after a while there's basically no more narrative and it's just them trying to deal with whatever's happening mm-hmm. as best they can. But I think that's kind of the genius of the film is it's um you you just have that usual sense, oh yeah, he's going to work it out and then you're like when is he going to work out? How is he going to work this out? This is insane. Yeah. And it really gets like, you can't even imagine how it works. But it doesn't comment on how Ethan Hunt always uh, does things last minute by making it like a dark film where like, mm. oh, this time he doesn't manage to do it. Like, it's not this. I'm glad we moved on from this thing, which is really depressing. And now it's more about like, he might work it out maybe if he really tries. And is he going to work it out? And he just gets into this really space where everyone is freaking out in the film and everyone's freaking out at the same time and it's just like thrilling and you're freaking out as well and it's just like oh my god I love how directly it tells you as well it sets Mm. up this like ticking clock scenario and tells you this is what's going to happen and Mm. when it comes around you're still gripping the armrest as as the clock ticks down it's like so so effective as suspenseful cinema this this Mm. is kind of unparalleled and it is fascinating how they've figured throughout the series you know out this character of Ethan Hunt and they've done the whole long hair they've done the whole hoodie (laughs) brooding kind of guy now he's almost just this force one of his first lines in the film is I am the storm it's part of a back and forth (laughs) coded word uh, kind of conversation but he says I am the storm and it's just, that's almost the perfect setup because he is this rolling, rumbling force of nature of momentum throughout the film. He's a rock star in it, and everyone <laughs> yeah. knows it as well. That's the, the beauty of it. That's how the Henry Cavill character is very funny. 
yeah. in contrast to this. Yeah. I'm not even going to say more because it's really, really funny. It's just well, he's, really he sets well up used. as uh, the counterpart to Ethan Hunt, the, the CIA hard man. Uh, we hear in that clip that he's referred to as the hammer to Ethan Hunt's scalpel. And that's such a perfect dynamic. And we see you know, how a different approach to a Mission Impossible mission can go when you're a guy who would probably punch something or shoot something rather than figure it out on the fly in the way that we know these films mm. to do. It's really fascinating. And he does have a great look. Henry Cavill. Yes. You know, this is the film that he had to keep his moustache for, <laughs> which meant the Justice League had to spend so much money CGI painting out. Million dollars or exactly. Something. And then it looked strange in the finished Justice League, didn't it? But I've sort of said in my, my review that even the, the Justice League's VFX team must just watch this and think, yeah, yeah. that was that was worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, all those hours spent digitally with scrubbing out his moustache <laughs> in the edit room is just totally paid off because it's it's a wonderful performance and I think it's a kind of interesting crucial character detail yeah. and it subverts his clean cut Superman image exactly, that, we, yeah. that we know so well absolutely is perfect How do we... can you imagine Tom Cruise like Ethan Hogg with a moustache like he would never do that has Tom Cruise ever played a moustache? He's had, he, had, he had the beardy face, didn't he, in the, in the late 90s? Yeah, but I don't, I, don't think, yeah. I don't think he ever really had just a moustache. What's the samurai? Last samurai. Last samurai. Yeah. He's got a more full beard face, I think. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so where do we think this would land in the Mission Impossible franchise? Do you think this is the, the peak, Adam? I still think the uh, original Brian De Palma okay. from 1996, uh, I should say, uh, is, is the best, but it's a very different movie. I think just as a pure action spectacle this is right up there mm-hmm. um, certainly better than the last couple of franchise installments mm. I know and, and um, you've not seen all of them I don't think but yeah I'm not sure I've seen all of them but I mean that's probably a sign of how much I love mm-hmm. them but uh, yeah I agree that I still love the Brian De Palma uh, original but I think what's really cool about this franchise is that they I don't know if they want to or they can afford to just try and make something different with a movie mm-hmm. and I hope they keep like changing it up because it's not like the James Bond films where they've, they've been quite uh, the same and the same and the same every time and with the Mission Impossible you really feel like every movie is going to be a little bit different maybe mm-hmm. now I hope that they keep doing it because it's changed quite a few times and I hope it keeps changing but yeah I think this is one of the best ones but it's quite different from everything else yeah, but it's they, still really great they've managed to make it seem so unique yeah. in the cinema calendar and each one seems to be an event and there's the big stunt and they can factor mm. that into the, the marketing and the hype around it yeah. I, I think this is probably you know, the most reliable franchise of the moment. Mm. You know, the, the last three films have been of such high standard. Yeah, it would be interesting to see where they go from here with it because I think this was commissioned or greenlit before Rogue Nation was actually released. Right. Whether this goes and makes, you know, a billion dollars, mm-hmm. we have to wait and see. I don't know whether they'll do another one. Cruz hasn't pinned his cards to Mars at this point. But it would be a shame if it was the final one because it does feel like even Cruise at 56 or something 56, yeah. has a lot of miles left in this franchise. The only thing is I'm afraid he's going to die what, on the next one. Yeah, well, we he, should he, be really happy that he only broke his ankle on this movie. Like, yeah. he, I don't know how that's the only injury he got. I think that shot's in the film, isn't it? Yeah. You see him limping <laughs> it's off It's really horrible. <laughs> I had to like look away. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point because I wonder how much... Or how willing he is to push himself. And, I think he he's he is. That's yeah. the, but I'm worried for him. I don't want him to die. It's a fascinating point of star studies in a way. Do we actually have empathy for Tom Cruise as, as a screen actor, or do we like seeing him throwing him through this? Or do we have a certain distance from him? I think you have a distance. So we can enjoy from it. it. I think you have a distance from it, but at the same time, it is so evident that he is performing these stunts. And I mean, obviously, the PR marketing machine that is kicks in a good year sometimes before these films are actually released lets you know that well in advance, but. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's someone who gets a bad rap a lot of the time and mm. he's a very 
a kind of old school Hollywood star in a lot of ways. Yeah, he's um, one of our last real stars. He's one of the last true true stars, I'd say. And I think he's just beyond the stunts. He's just an incredible actor. Like I don't know if he's just learned to look like a human being and like have emotions on his face mm-hmm. and stuff, but um, <laughs> he's very good at it. <laughs> but he's yeah, he does have a, there is craft to that, but also mm. a great sense of star persona yeah. and a, and a relationship with Tom Cruise as a creation of pop culture and the way that this film he he doesn't play himself as a romantic lead anymore, which is some one of the reasons why James Bond falls down as the actors get older. Mm. He's not trying to back the girl every time well, he's, he's hit this real groove now in this middle part of his career where he's not making films like Night and Day anymore mm-hmm. he's doing Mission Impossible he's doing occasionally stuff like Jack Reacher mm-hmm. I'm sure there'll be more interesting sort of Michael Mann era stuff that he'll go back and do I'd love to see him work with Spielberg again wow yeah but yeah I think at this point you know he's probably going to go away and recover a little bit once the press campaign has, uh, has, has finished and then he'll give himself up for the next one, I'm sure. But yeah, you never hear him. What I love is you never hear him sort of whinge about it or, mm. you know, at the same mm. time as he's putting his body on the line, he's getting compensated handsomely for it, I'm sure. Um, and you don't get where, you know, you had Daniel Craig belly aching last time around when, when the uh, last James Bond film came out that he, he was sort of done with it and willing yeah. to like cut his wrists or something. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. very, I mean, it was quite a kind of glib Christ. statement. It's, it's, and it, it, they've made Mission Impossible into such a positive franchise. Yeah. An entertaining, satisfying one that may have, you know, scares and thrills and all that, but it is one that you come out entertained. It mm. totally has the audience in its in its mind, you yeah, know? it wants to be entertaining, and this is the longest one of the franchise. It's like nearly two and a half hours, it but it really rattles it? along. Yeah, should we put some scores onto this, Adam? Do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I, I, think I think I know what you. I think I went. I think I went like three, five, four in my okay. review. So, just purely based on the last couple, I think this had something to prove, and yeah, it's one of the best times I've had in the cinema recently. Certainly, seeing it in IMAX was was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to go and see it again. So yeah, Elena. Um, probably three five five because mm-hmm. I keep thinking about it. I, I, it hasn't dimmed in my memory, and I want to see it again, mm-hmm. uh, and I will very soon. Like I'm, I'm very excited to see it again. I think it's one of the few films that I've seen where the IMAX, that and Dunkirk, is one of the few films I've seen where uh, the switch to IMAX in the film means something and actually adds to the experience. Right. I think I'd say I love this franchise. I was you know, five in anticipation and probably four and four enjoyment and in retrospect. But I, I saw it at my local cinema in quite a small screen. I think I'll go back and try and see it on a bigger screen as possible if IMAX is available. That seems to be the way to see it. Mm, it's incredible. Anyway, that was Mission Impossible Fallout. Up next, a much smaller scale film, the Mancunian drama Apostasy. And now heading up north for Apostasy. Inspired by Daniel Coca-Taylor's experiences within the Jehovah's Witness community, the film follows two sisters and their mother as devotion turns to dissent. Here's a clip in which the younger daughter, played by Molly Wright, describes some of the key tenets of their beliefs. So what do you guys believe in then? Going over or what? <laughs> Come on, I'm serious. I want to know. God is going to restore Earth back to paradise, how he intended it to be. Like in, in Genesis, that's where we'll live. <laughs> right, so what about everyone who ain't a Jehovah's? God will decide what's in their hearts, but if, if they refuse to listen, then they'll be removed. Oh, so what's so wrong with this world? It says in the Bible that this whole world is in the power of the wicked one, Satan. Don't know about all that. Yeah. It's mud. Yeah, well, you have to admit, things happen that aren't right. 
Now there's wars all the time and cruelty to animals and that. So that's a clip from Apostasy. Elena, so this is a, a very much a personal film for the writer-director here, exploring some of the experiences he had growing up. What did you make of it? I didn't know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, so that's one reason to see this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite shocked by how austere and difficult it is for people living mm. inside. And it was quite interesting the way he focused on free women, mm. because this is clearly the people who is harder for because they have to make these decisions and everything is ruled by men pretty much it's not like pointed out like oh my god poor women it's, it's just a fact and so everything is shown in this quite sort of objective way mm-hmm. which is basically what makes it even more harrowing and like disquiet him because it's very emotional and moving but it's not a sentimental film it's just showing you the facts but the facts alone the things that they have to deal with are so intense that it's very affecting mm-hmm. without even trying like it's just that's just the story and I was quite impressed by how the director managed to weave a very emotional story through this sort of um, quite objective approach to the story well it has these almost competing elements isn't it family drama mm-hmm. but then also this almost expose and you could say revealing this quite closed off community to the world revealing aspects and terminology that we may not know. We may see Jehovah's Witnesses going out and doing their work at train stations or door-to-door, but we may not know the term pioneering, which is what it's called, or the the term that we've discovered quite early in the film, which is disfellowship, which is where uh, Louisa, the older daughter, uh, becomes pregnant from a a guy who's outside of the community and she is disfellowshipped, cast out, and has to sever ties with her family. And that's something that families have to go with, and suddenly faith and family and responsibilities towards the two come into conflict. Adam, how did you approach this film? What did you get from it? Yeah, I mean, like like Elena, I didn't really know much about Jehovah's Witnesses. I think growing up we maybe had people knocking on the door with pamphlets and explaining a little bit about their religion. And I think that there's some interesting scenes in this where the two girls, part of their duties, I guess, within the church are to go out and try and effectively convert people Mm. from other religions. So you have them, they actually learn Urdu and go to to someone's house and and essentially open the door and speak to him in Urdu and try and essentially preach their their gospel. Mm. I think the decision to frame it from the point of view of two young female characters is quite a a shrewd one. It sort Mm. of softens what is otherwise quite an acerbic and polemic as you say, expose of this organisation, um, which is very patriarchal, very male-dominated. Mm. I guess one of the real sore points for people, you know, viewing it from the outside like us is, is this idea that... Uh, so early on, uh, the young character is revealed to be anemic and she yeah. requires a, a blood transfusion, probably. And basically, that's forbidden in their religion. And, uh, you know, there's this interesting little conflict early on with a, an NHS nurse and the young character um, mm-hmm. and they're basically at you know this impasse where you know that she probably needs this uh, operation and it's not gonna ha- it's not gonna happen basically and um it, it sets up an interesting potential tragedy which the film kind of weaves towards and yeah it, it left me feeling quite quite sad actually <laughs> um, it's a very Grim film, really, isn't it? Because it explores this way of thinking and believing that the world is going to end soon and it's just your grim determination towards that end, spreading the word and being pure, 
that you have to keep you going. And he, uh, Daniel Cocatello, shoots the interiors of these houses in Manchester in such such sort of underlit mm-hmm. uh, beige, and you know, you know, people what people might call kitchen sink drama, austerity, and it's a very hard film to watch at times especially with some of these aspects that are brought up. It's the very first scene, actually, Adam, you're referring to, that Alex, the younger daughter, it's revealed that on birth she Mm. needed a blood transfusion and the doctors gave her that without consulting the mother, consulting the church and their council that that liaise with um, the medical profession. And so she has to carry that shame for the whole of her life that she should have become one of the youths who put God first, as a pamphlet calls it and you know, die and go to Jehovah. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to have, as you said, kitchen sink-style drama in which the pressures that they feel are really brought on by themselves and by their church and their organisation. It's nothing really responsible from the kind of wider societal mm. point of view. You know, it's not that they're really hard up necessarily or, or you know, it's, it's not this, yeah, it's not like a it's Ken Loach style. It's not social drama, exactly, is it? No, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's why it's really interesting. Like I was really torn because I was watching, I was like, this is really, these people are suffering because of religion that mm-hmm. seems quite harsh to them. But we're literally only following people who want to stay in the religion. Mm-hmm. Like the daughter who uh, becomes pregnant, she's not really a character that we follow. Like it just, mm-hmm. She kind of just announces it to the rest of her family, like her mother and, and her sister. And we stay with the sister and the mother and they don't really want to leave the religion. And so you're forced to stay with these characters that you literally can't understand. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's, it's very, that's what you're saying. It's like it's, it's a criticism of the religion without being really like from this outside perspective like oh poor women it's more like poor women but they want this mm. and it's that's yeah. why it's very it's a very am- ambiguous conflicted experience as a viewer well it's a way that the narrative point of view and perspective has adopted some of the strategies of the church the idea of distancing yourself from society the wider society there are there are gaps here that maybe make you know, take on greater meaning the fact that the father is, isn't there what happened to him and you know it's mentioned at one point that he is around somewhere, mm. but then why isn't he here? And when the sister is thrown out of the church, she disappears. And this is the way that these ideas take hold and mm. worm their way into their minds, where you can't unthink them and you can't come to terms with them from an outside point of view. I've got to say, I did feel very conflicted watching mm. this film from the point of view of like this community, which, although their mission, as it were, their sort of crusade is that they want to convert everyone. Mm-hmm in the whole world. In reality, it is quite a kind of small church, quite mm-hmm. a small organisation. And part of me was like, well, they're harming themselves and the people within their community, clearly, but at the same time, they all seem to be on board with it. Mm-hmm. It's like each to their own, you know? At what point do you just have to accept that some people want to live life in a certain way and that's their beliefs and you have to respect that? Like, it's someone who, watching it, isn't maybe religious or doesn't really empathize with this specific church you might not really be able to relate to it you might not understand what these characters are doing but yeah I kind of felt myself thinking like is this like responsible filmmaking you know is Mm. this the sort of thing that could incite negative actions towards these people I mean obviously the film is a bit about how this religion is quite harsh and difficult but also it's like it doesn't really ask you to understand them it's more about the relationship between the, the mother and her daughter and, and two sisters and how 
this is threatened yeah. or this is in conflict with the religion. So we can relate to that part, I think. Yeah, yeah. But I agree with you that it's still a very odd uh, viewing experience where you don't really know what to make of it. But I think that's just kind of part, that's probably what it feels like if mm. you're inside when you, you love someone, but you have to never mm. see them again. Yeah, I think there, there are so many sort of thematic threads going around in this film. There's one that re- resonated with me, which is the, ne- the notion of the meaning of the word save. They're going out and pioneering, hoping to save these these people. Meanwhile, by rejecting medical help, by uh, rejecting their family members, etc., they're not saving their their own. So there's a conflict there, just a basic double think, a, a, a conflict mm. of thought, and that's that's something to to muse on. But it, it, I, I do agree that it's it's not as compelling a family drama for me as it is a look into this world. And mm. even then, I don't know how much because it's being told from a certain perspective. I just think that you, it doesn't matter how compelling the family drama mm. is, the rest of it, the religious stuff is just so fascinating and yeah. odd, frankly, that you're you're just engrossed by that. Mm-hmm. And it's like the same with, not to conflate the two, but when you see Scientology depicted in mm. documentary and in film, that's often the, the subject of like scorn and ridicule and actually is often satirised quite a lot. And mm-hmm. this seems like it's on a similar kind of level to that, but isn't isn't doing that it's but not caricaturing no it's it, not no. at all but you know you could easily look at it in the same light mm-hmm. and also what, what was really interesting watching the film is obviously you've got these actors who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses mm. acting like Jehovah's Witnesses so when the mother is, is told about her daughter she doesn't have this reaction that you would expect from a mother to have instead she's very upset and Daniel Cocoteo told me that he had to tell the actors like no 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 this isn't how a Jehovah's Witness would react. You have to go against your instincts. Mm. You have to be like, you wouldn't reach out to touch your daughter. You would literally not touch her. You would go in another room. It's just very interesting to see these actors who are very young as well yeah. succeeding in, in portraying this very odd way of thinking that's like this completely almost opposite way that you would react to things very successfully on screen. It's a very different film to get. It, it certainly plays in this mould. You could maybe re- re- compare it to First Reformed a few weeks ago, a film about religion, but it's not a state of the of being via religion in the way that Paul Schrader made First Reformed. But it's also a northern interior family drama, but it's not like Ken Loach or mm. Mike Lee would make it. It's certainly unique, and I'd really appreciate it seeing a film like this. I'm from Manchester, the other side of Manchester from where this is set, but there are very few films coming out of the northwest right now especially ones that are about modern day issues and people who are living there now and it's amazing to see a a new voice come out of that Mm. area of the country Mm. should we put some scores on this adam yeah i think i'll go threes across the board for this one Mm -hmm. um it's not really a film you can say you enjoy but it's something you get a lot out of and Mm -hmm. it's definitely one i've thought about afterwards i don't think it really impacted me hugely at the time and as I say, I'm thinking about it and I've read up subsequently on Jehovah's Witnesses, but I don't think it's one that I want to revisit any time. Yeah, Elena? Um, I would say 344. Three, 3 because, yeah, it's quite grim and I, I didn't mm. really know about it. But then 4 because I, it's a debut feature. Like This is mm. his first film and I, and I was really impressed with the, the way he shot this. It's, it's a very ambitious project to make as well, like to tell this story. And I think he succeeded more than succeeded I was really impressed and um, I learned a lot but also yeah I just I was really impressed by this strange way of portraying characters like our relationship to the characters is so odd like we we care for them but also we don't at all understand them and I thought it was quite a bold move to make a movie like this yeah 
I think I, I'll be three across the board as well for this. It had a soft impact on me and it's been worming my way into my mind, but I think the lasting impact for this will be I can't wait to see what Daniel Coca-Taylor does next mm. and especially the, the younger cast members. Mm. I'd love to see more of them. So that was apostasy. Up next, it's time for Film Club, which sees a 4K restoration of the Merchant Ivory classic, Morris. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And now for Film Club this week, Merchant Ivory's 1987 E.M. Forster adaptation Morris is back in cinemas. It follows the life and loves of Morris Hall from his student days in Cambridge to adult life coming to terms with his sexuality in Edwardian Britain. Here he is, played by James Wilby, having a chat with Rupert Graves, his young lover. What are you saying to be seen with me? Hmm? You're not glad, anyway. Don't say you are. Of course I'm glad. Then why didn't you come to the boathouse? I waited two nights. I got no sleep waiting. I know something. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you could tell me a good many things, Alec. I know about you and Mr. Durham. your office, is it? What'd you do here? Well, you shouldn't treat me like a dog. You was just amusing yourself. I've never come like that to a gentleman before. You said call me Morris, but you never even wrote to me. You made a fool of me and I can make you sorry for it. A clip from Morris there. 
You know, growing up, I had no real sense of Merchant Ivory films. They always seemed like very dry, very buttoned-up mm. movies. But now they seem kind of radical, don't they? Because you have an American and an Indian, you know, a, a queer couple pretty much making these films that couldn't be more British, uh, having, an, having a point of view on period Britain. Yeah, and portraying the upper classes in a way which, I mean, was was being done a lot at the time. Obviously, Ian Forster adaptations were very much in vogue at the time. Mm. You had stuff like A Room with a View, which is another ivory, yeah, uh, much an ivory production, and Howard's End as well, a bit later. Not the sort of thing you were getting later with with kind of Jane Austen period adaptations. Mm-hmm. This is like very specifically focusing on often young men and their their struggles with love and life generally. Well, this is an interesting book as well, isn't it? Because this was Ian Forster wrote this very much uh, inspired by his own experiences, but then wasn't published until mm-hmm. long after his death. Uh, Elena, have you, have you read the book? Everyone should read this book. It's this book that I was reading earlier this year and literally got to a point where I would read one paragraph and just start crying on the bus. Wow. It is the most beautiful book I've ever read. It's, it's just the, the writing, Ian Forster's writing, I think it's the last novel he wrote, I think. Or maybe, no, maybe no, because he started writing quite early, but then didn't want to publish it yeah. because he thought people wouldn't want a happy ending yeah. and just wouldn't want a story quite explicit. So he just didn't want to publish it and then they published it way after his death. Mm-hmm. But the book is just so... You're in the mind of Morris... And it is just so clear, everything that's going on in his mind. Mm. And it's the story of this character who learns that he's gay, but then doesn't want to live that way because he, one, thinks he's disgusting Mm. at first. But then obviously he has this thing where he wants to live his truth, so he wants to be who he is, but then he doesn't. And then, for example, there's one passage in the book where he resigns himself to not be gay anymore because of something that happens with... uh, Hugh Grant's character and then the, the book just decides to skip and, and there's just one paragraph that just says he spent the next five years bored <laughs> and it's just the most heartbreaking thing ever it's, it's incredible I don't even know how to talk about this book it's just incredible does the film do it justice? well I think it does but also I mean I don't know how you could ever make that, okay. that book into a, a film it is honestly just the most incredible you, you just get this sense of like you can follow through his every thought and his emotions and you, it's, it's so vivid mm-hmm. and it's so moving. And, you know, it's a romantic story, but it's also not a romantic story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's many ways that it's not that romantic, like he doesn't necessarily end up with the guy that he mm-hmm. follows through his entire life. And it's not portrayed in this very... Um, because we can't be in the open, basically, that's why it's not that romantic. But the film manages to do something quite similar to the book by being quite... Um, the book is, in a way, it's quite brutal because you get all his thoughts and all his emotions and nothing is hidden. And the film is a bit like that by being quite spare and objective and it kind of hits you in the guts in the same way. But I think there are just all these nuances that you can't get. But I think, yeah, it's still an amazing film. Yeah, did you think this was a, a good film, Adam? One worthy of a it's, 4K re-release? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's something... Uh, um, I think we've all seen this film for the first time for yeah, this. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just really struck by the, the narrative sweep of it and mm-hmm. the time frame. I mean, it doesn't maybe have those hard cuts as in the book or those hard like time no, jumps, no. but but you do get this sense of time passing mm-hmm. and the characters kind of changing. And obviously very early on it's established that Morris is in love with Hugh Grant's character, Clive. Yeah. But then quite early on you realise that that's not going to work out and then their lives go different ways and mm-hmm. they, they sort of interweave throughout the narrative. And it's just really beautiful how all of those threads are picked up again and little bits of information are kind of eked out and you learn a little bit more about the characters but you manage to always be staying with Morris and his experience and his you know emotions it's quite 
quite a beautiful film. It's quite a long film as it's well. Like two but... and a half hours, yeah. But then within that, you get such detail and such sweep. Mm. Passing of time generally communicated by appearance and reappearance and disappearance of mustaches. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but you do go from college days to working years and adult years and there is such a sweep and it's quite a classical film it doesn't really it's not radical or particularly cool at all um, I can imagine why these films could feel quite staid and theatrical you do have the best of British theatre in there literally one of the first um, speaking roles is Simon Callow yeah. callowing it up uh, on a beach explaining the birds and bees to I think that's meant to be young Morris at the yeah. beginning mm -hmm. but the range of performances is so incredible this is Hugh Grant one of Hugh Grant's very first roles and he was considering giving up acting circa 1987 imagine if he had and you know you talk about Tom Cruise and dedication the dedication to the performances here are incredible those scenes in, on the river in Cambridge where they're doing all their own punts mm. for example um, <laughs> and I'd like uh, to shout out Ben Kingsley, oddly. Oh, yes. A very odd cameo from Ben Kingsley playing a role that was meant to be for John Malkovich. Oh, wow. As this, um, he's sort of a hypnotist, psychotherapist. Mm. Yeah, ben, of, ben Kingsley's doing a, a funny accent as he doing a, do. Doing a very sort of brutish American accent mm. with some great lines of dialogue where he's, his recommendation is stroll around with a gun mm. uh, to almost up your masculinity points. <laughs> What did the listeners think, Adam? Yeah, a nice couple of comments this week. Laura Naismith says, super film, glad it's getting a re-release. Yeah. And uh, Juan Mayer said, magnificent film, was doing what Called By Your Name did 30 years before and by the same man, James Ivory. Yeah, it is amazing. I guess that's part of why this film's been rediscovered. Mm. When it came out, it did win um, awards at the Venice Film Festival for actors and so on. It was only nominated for was it set design or costume design at the Academy Awards, and it didn't do as well as their previous film, Room of the View, or as they would do later on. But now with Calling By Your Name bringing James Ivory back into the picture, it's ripe for a rewatch. Yeah, and he was, well, I think, was it last year, was one of the oldest ever... Oscar nominees. Yeah, mm. He's 90 now, isn't right. he? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, there's so many parallels between this and Calling By Your Name, I think, obviously thematically, but just in some of the choice of shots. You can see the director, Luca Guadagnino, is really influenced by it. Um, mm. There's so many moments of just these guys in the same space, occupying the same space, yeah. sort of like physically but emotionally as well, and lovely sort of images of them in the meadow rolling around and like little caresses of hands and mm -hmm. it's just those moments which are just very restrained and, and natural. What surprised me about this in comparison to Coin by Name, Coin by Name was controversial on one particular point when Luca Guadagnino decides to pan away from a sex scene mm -hmm. and was quite precious around the male nudity versus female nudity in the film and so on. This has full frontal male nudity, does not pan mm -hmm. away from men being in bed together, men being naked together. And that's funny, you think of costume dramas from the 1980s not being a period of cinema where you'd see that. And it's funny as well because I don't think in the book it's very explicit. Basically in the book every time there's something quite sexual that way that happens, Ian Forster goes into these really beautiful, um, not metaphors, but he just goes into like how this is, which is true, it's like for this character to get to do these things is just like the best thing that it's like he's fully himself and stuff. And he goes into these descriptions that aren't really like he's not talking about like their bodies and stuff that way but it's really beautiful but mm. in the film they opt to just show the bodies which I think is quite interesting as well the film has such delicate and evocative visual metaphors there's a cricket scene where Scudder who is the Rupert Graves character the sort of the help the groundsman and um, Morris James will be a, a batting together and it's just they 
perform so well together, they're playing so well. And then Hugh Grant rocks up, replaces Scudder and immediately mm. gets Morris uh, taken out. Mm. And it's a really deft little visual metaphor there, I thought. And likewise, the end, the very end, as we say, it's kind of a happy ending because Morris and Scudder do you know, reconcile and have their relationship. But it does end on a note where it's Clive Durham, Hugh Grant's character, literally closing the shutters on that side of his sexuality. Mm. It's quite a... It's bittersweet, I think. Yeah, it is. And it's, he was the character who was the most um, liberated at the start. Mm-hmm. And he ends up married with a woman. Yeah. It's very sad. But I think there's some difference with Come By Your Name because in Come By Your Name, they don't really have anything stopping them. And mm. the reason why they don't end up together is because he's young and he needs to live his life and Amy Hammer has different plans. But in this film and in the book, you get the sense that these moments when, yes, we're together, but what next? Like, what are we going to do? What is the plan? Mm. And they always have this concern where it's like, how are we actually going to live? Mm-hmm. And at the end, when he decides this plan with Scudder, that's what's motivating the plan. It's like, he loves him, but he also loves Hugh Grant, but at some point he has to make a plan mm-hmm. to, to be as happy as he can be. And it's really this sense of like, you got to make these hard decisions that are not at all in Come By Your Name. It's mm-hmm. not all the same thing, but that's why it's so moving. That's why it's like the, the time period is quite different. And I think that's what makes the, the film and the book like just really moving because they're as romantic as they want to be, as in love as they might be. Like there's a point where how... What can I live with? Well, there is that sense of you know, having to be real about it, really mm. realistic. It was a criminal act to yeah. perform that love yeah. publicly. Yeah. So there's that guilt and shame and paranoia that goes into every encounter. Like with the clip we heard, there is this sense of, is Scudder going to blackmail mm. Morris here or are they actually in love? And that really marks the whole film. Yeah, and there's a scene where he's in a pub and sort of coming on to another guy and they go around into the alley and uh, some sort of coppers yeah. with their truncheons come up and like Oi! <laughs> grab yeah. him by the collar and yank him yeah, off and exactly. chuck him in a, in a, in a wagon. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like touches on that stuff quite lightly, but it always lets you know that it's there and that mm. it is this, I, I guess they seemingly exist in their own bubble in some respects, but then that wider societal pressure does come back into it. Yeah. Did you spot Helena Bonham Carter in the cricket scene? Yeah. She's in the cricket scene, yeah. I think, don't think she's credited, and she's very young. She's mm. just, you know, just so baby-faced at that mm. time. Amazing thing that she'll go on to all sorts of uh, big and broad <laughs> performances <laughs> in just a few decades after. Yes. So I believe um, Morris is now doing a tour around the country, a 4K restoration that the BFI have put together, and I think we'd all recommend you seek that out. And read the book. And read the book as well, it's a strong recommendation long. for everyone. <laughs> it's a good one. Is it a weekend read or a holiday read? Yeah, like perfect, exactly. Perfect timing. Thank you, Alana. And thank you, Alana, for joining us as well this week. Thank and you. Adam, what's uh, happening next week? Uh, well, so next week, I think uh, there's another big blockbuster coming thick and fast. So with Marvel's newest one, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Brilliant. Which features the first, I only found this out during the press screening, but features the first... Um, female lead in a Marvel movie to actually have top billing in the film's title as well. Right, Zolf Spit herself, yeah. Right, um, played by Evangeline Lilly. Yeah. Uh, and we're also doing a British drama called uh, The Escape, uh, which is not enough action movie, as the <laughs> title suggests. And also Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7 yeah, for Film Club. That's a, that's a great lineup. So it just leaves me to say thanks once more to Elena Lazic Thank for joining me this week and Adam Woodward. 
Thank you. Before we go, I've, oh. a little bird's told me that you've got another podcast coming out. My side piece. Yeah. Yes, that's launching today. I have said this on the podcast before that I'm quite a fan of anime and particularly Studio Ghibli. I'm today, in fact, Friday, launching uh, a new podcast called Ghibliotech, which uh, sort of in support of Film 4's summer season where they're showing 24 of their films. We're picking out six of the classics and deep cuts and going through them episode by episode. So today's episode is Spirited Away. I'm hosting that with Jake Cunningham from the Curzon Cinemas podcast. And that should be available via Acast and all of your usual podcaster uh, avenues, maybe when you're listening to this this episode. Great. Looking forward to it. Uh, please uh, let me know what you think. Thanks once again, Admin Elena, for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. I've been Michael Leader. And as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.